Well, this morning, before we look into God's Word together, I want to pause and celebrate the completion of our 91-week with Jesus journey. It was a congregation, amen, it was a congregation-wide initiative that was designed to encourage the expanded influence of the Holy Spirit in us by helping us develop regular habits of daily Bible study. Over 1,200 adults from ACAC participated, and many family and friends joined you. We heard that testimony again and again. And we have heard countless testimonies like the ones you've just heard on the video, people testifying to a new habit, a new hunger for the Word, a new appreciation of the Word, a new understanding of the Word, a new sensitivity to God's Word. Isn't it amazing when you follow God's directions how things work out well? And that's all we were doing, following God's directions. So today, if you started and completed the 91-week journey, I want you to stand right now so that together we can celebrate what God has done in our lives. Don't be bashful. Please stand, and let's celebrate that together. Amen. And there will be lovely parting gifts as you leave today. How many of you would also say, you know, I participated, I didn't finish, but I got a lot closer to reading the Bible regularly than at any other time in my life? Is that anyone's testimony? All right. And that's to be celebrated as well. Thank you. Now, people have been asking me for a number of weeks, what's next? And the classic question, are we going to do it again? And the answer is yes. We're going to start in February, and there's a reason for that, and we'll be explaining some of the details, but this time we're going to call it 91 Weeks with the Holy Spirit. We'll follow the same reading schedule because Pastor Soper put together a very good reading schedule that keeps you from getting mired down in Leviticus. <laughs> and you can get mired down in Leviticus. We'll follow his reading schedule. We'll still use his commentary because I bet you don't remember all of it. But I'm also going to be recording a weekly commentary that will be available to you on how that week's passages teach us about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, hence the title, 91 Weeks with the Holy Spirit. Now, so you don't get out of your habit in the meantime, pick a favorite biblical book, perhaps one of the Gospels, read it through November, December, January. It'll be especially helpful to read the Gospels in preparation for our celebration of the incarnation of Christ. And then we'll give you all the details and all the materials for our launch in February. And it was so good the first time, let's do it again, and let's invite friends to do it with us. Many times you testified you had friends sharing the journey who don't even know Jesus. They just wanted to read the Bible for the first time. And we know when they're exposed to the power of God's Word, good things are going to happen. All right, let's get into the Word for this weekend. As I stand here this weekend, I am firmly convinced that we are on the threshold 
of a strategic opportunity that God has put before us under the banner of expanded influence. And expanded influence isn't anything new. God revealed this chapter in our life together to me 33 years ago when he called me here because he gave me a two-part vision. He told me he was going to renew and grow the church, and he has done that. But then he said, once I've renewed the church, once I've grown the church, I'm going to use the church to share with others what it has learned about multicultural ministry in an urban context. And make no mistake, what we have learned needs to be shared because the majority of American churches are still monocultural churches. They may have a few ethnic minorities in their ranks, but they still do things the Caucasian way. They are monocultural churches. And the Church of Jesus Christ is still tragically underrepresented in our American urban neighborhoods, including neighborhoods like this one. The American church has fallen into a suburban captivity that in many ways is as bad as the Egyptian captivity of the people of God. Now, we're not going to reverse this trend nationally, but we can reverse it in some places, and that's what expanded influence is all about. In the immediate future, three C's, campus redesign, church planting, and increased communications that will enable us to expand God's kingdom here, but also in other underserved, culturally diverse urban neighborhoods. And God's already raising up people and opportunity towards that. So we stand on the brink of opportunity. But when you're standing on the brink of an opportunity, corporately or in your personal life, it's always good to do two things, and we see examples of this all throughout Scripture. It's good to look two directions, to look back, remind yourself of where God has brought you from and what He has taught you on the journey and the mandate He's given you, and then look forward and identify the giants before you so that you can form strategies to address those giants and defeat those giants. And that's what we want to do today. We want to look back. Now, notice I said look back. We don't want to live in the past. Dead churches live in the past. But living churches look to the past to remember what God has called them to do in the present and in the future. Towards that end, to launch us into that, let me read a simple narrative verse that was key in the shaping of this congregation. It's Matthew chapter 14, verse 35, and it simply says, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And the title of my teaching today is Looking Like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, Enable me to preach and teach your truth as you want it taught today. And by your Spirit, open our understanding to embrace and apply the truth. And we pray this for the glory of Christ and for the sake of people who need us to have a vibrant witness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice today, may the Lord be with you. I want to open today 
with a rather lengthy quote from one of my favorite authors, Marva Dawn. And this comes from her book, Unfettered Hope. And she shares some observations she made at a classical concert. Quote, Recently, I was disappointed when a brilliant instrumentalist playing a concerto with the Oregon Symphony came on stage dressed in a dazzling but extremely revealing tank top. Now, she hadn't dressed provocatively in past appearances, so it seemed the act of a desperate woman. Could she no longer depend on the intense power of her music to keep the audience attentive? Did she not trust her own identity as a gifted and passionate virtuoso? In similar fashion, the commodities of our society are so attractively packaged, it appears growing numbers of churches have lost sight of their own identity and now trust in actions that align with that identity. They assume they have to be similar glamorous, even seductive, to appeal to the lost within their communities to announce their relevance, to provide everything their members need, and to make a difference in the world. And in the process, Marva said, I believe the American church has entered a spiral of weakening, becoming less and less what the church really is, and consequently having less and less to offer a broken world." End quote. And I agree with her 100%. 33 years ago, when God called me to pastor ACAC, we faced giants everywhere we turned. And rather than diving into all of the ugly details, suffice it to say that at that time we were a discouraged, aging, entirely Caucasian congregation struggling to serve Jesus in the midst of an ethnically mixed, economically and socially challenged urban neighborhood. And the neighborhood saw us as irrelevant at best and bigoted and the enemy at worst. Other than that, everything was great. <laughs> now, given those and other factors, many suggested that ACAC's best days were behind us and that we should join the flight to the suburbs. Modern descendants of Job's comforters, and they still exist, told me that the church had no future in this location, and neither did I. Needless to say, I was not encouraged. I remember after my first Sunday here, one morning service, going home and saying to Karen, what have I done? What have I done? And to make matters worse, and if you noticed, there's always something to make matters worse. <laughs> to make matters worse, I was totally clueless as to what to do. I know what you're thinking. You still are. Keep that to yourself. <laughs> See, I had no training in urban ministry, none, not even one class. I had no experience in cross-cultural environments. I know this may come as a shock to you, but I grew up white. And I grew up white in an all-white middle-class community. 
And when you grew up white in the 50s in a white community, you never thought about your ethnicity and you never thought about your economy. Never. And the church I grew up in didn't backfill my gaps in understanding. They actually expanded them. Because the church I grew up in focused almost entirely on private morality while neglecting the social dimension of the gospel of Christ and kingdom living. And they looked at any social expression of the gospel as something suspicious and evil. So when I came here, I quickly found myself in a state of holy desperation. Say those two words with me, holy desperation. That's the conviction that unless God intervenes, you're sunk. Unless God shows up, we're done. Now, I like to combine those two words. Holy desperation is desperate because it's convinced there's no hope apart from God. But it's also holy because it's convinced nothing can keep us apart from God, and He's up to the task. His holiness keeps our desperation from becoming despair. His holiness breathes new hope into our hearts. And here's what you need to know about holy desperation. You will almost always find holy desperation on the front edge of any significant change in your life or in the life of a church. You see, it's as if God has to bring us to the point where we know apart from Him we're sunk before we will bow our knees and seek His help and cast ourselves upon His power. God can't do much with us until we're desperate. You probably know somebody who has a very destructive habit in their life and you've prayed for them and you've appealed to them and they've been to counseling, but they're still struggling with the habit because they haven't gotten desperate enough. They haven't got to an end of themselves. They haven't had the experience of the prodigal in the pig pen when he came to himself and said, this is a hot mess, I need to go back home. Desperation always precedes significant change. You see, holy desperation can be a friend that invites us to discovery. It drives us to seek answers where the best answers are always found on our knees before God. So as strange as it may sound, if you find yourself in a place of desperation, don't waste that desperation. Don't waste your desperation. Seek for God in it and make it the threshold for growth. Well, as we sat, sought God, excuse me, in holy desperation, God reminded us of two obvious things, but we always forget the obvious things. He reminded us that His sufficiency is bigger than our deficiencies. He's bigger than any giant before us. He's bigger than any gap within us. His resume makes that obvious to anyone who's paying attention. But God taught us something else. He taught us that the modern Western church often measures success by the wrong standards. We're losing our identity as the church because we're measuring success by the wrong standards. In too many places, we measure success by nickels and noses. 
the size of the budget in the offering, and the average number of people in attendance, nickels and noses. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Regular attendance at the assembly is important. We considered that a few weeks ago. And generous, spirit-led giving is an essential part of devotion to Christ and a sign of maturity and faith. Those things are important. But both of those things can be present where faith is deficient and where obedience is lacking. And I would offer up the Pharisees of Jesus' day as a prime example. They never missed a meeting, but they missed the Messiah entirely. And they tithed when the annual tithe was 23%. People who say, I believe in the Old Testament tithe, my first question to them is, so you give it a 23% level? Because that was the entire Old Testament tithe. And the, and the Pharisees tithed religiously, but Jesus said, you neglect the stuff that really matters, like mercy and the broken people and the expansion of my kingdom. So you can have lots of nickels and lots of noses and be failing utterly in the sight of God. So what is the measure of success for the church? I'd like to suggest the measure of success in God's kingdom is holiness manifested in obedience. Holiness, becoming everything God wants you to be. Obedience, doing everything God wants you to be. Lives that exhibit the totality of God's restoring work. Lives characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Lives committed to Christ's mission. And having the right measures of success for the church is critical both individually and corporately. You might be thinking, Pastor Rock, how does this apply to me? I just want to get through the week. But here's the reality. If you're going to get through the week, you need to be in a church that's getting it right. Because if your church is following the wrong script, they're leading you down the wrong path. And if you're walking down the wrong path, honey, you're never going to get through the week. Besides which, our concern isn't how you're going to get through the week, but how you're going to get through life. Right. See, when you take too narrow a view of what it means to be in the kingdom, you become like the person who approaches you after church and says, can you give me $10 so that I can eat today? And you might say, well, I'll give you $10, but I'd like to encourage you to come to our church and, and learn about Jesus and learn about managing your money so that you don't end up like this again. And they say, no, no, I just need 10 bucks. Now, you know they need a lot more than 10 bucks. They need a whole new lifestyle. But they just want the immediate. And, and, and people who just want to come to church to get through the week, get through the day, never get through the week or the day very well. We need to have the right standards of success. If we don't, we'll run from situations that seem to say guaranteed failure, and in so doing, we'll run from actual success. See, when we have the wrong standards, we tend to see giants that cannot be slain when in actuality we're facing opportunities that should not be missed. 
You see, I believe the toughest ministry situations are the ones that offer the most. Because if death to pride and fear and self-reliance births the liberty and the relief of holiness in our hearts, then ministry in challenging places ought to be pursued as quickly as our fears allow. Because most of you have learned what I have learned. We make our greatest advances in faith. We learn our deepest lessons when we're walking through a hard place. Most of our growth occurs during storms, not during the sunshine. And if we embrace hard places, we'll discover more about God. We'll discover more about ourselves. My acceptance of the call to this church was one of the best decisions I had ever made. Because in this place, I learned how to get rid of the concern for reputation and fear of failure that plagues and ruins so many pastors' hearts and so much of pastoral ministry. And in a hard place, I've discovered the depth of God's power like I never would have otherwise. Well, as I sought the Lord, Lord, what do we do in this situation? I learned that God's people are well-intentioned, but many times they aren't helpful. Have you discovered that? (laughs) You ever have a Christian friend who was well-intentioned but not very helpful? Back in the 80s when I first came, we were in the midst of what was called the church growth movement, and it really was just an unholy marriage of American business techniques and Scripture. And its offerings were largely shaped by white middle-class culture and suburban realities. And the real stress in the church growth movement was location, location, parking, parking. And I read that and thought, yeah, right. We don't have either. And early on, I attended a conference where the speaker was Lyle Schaller. Now, Lyle invested his life in diagnosing the American church, and he was called the Dean of Church Consultants. And when I told the dean the vision God had gave me, he essentially said, good luck with that. Not much chance. So I realized my help would have to come from the Holy Spirit. And let me say on a personal level, there are times when God's got to call you to something, and even your Christian brothers and sisters are got to say, good luck with that. And when that happens, cast yourself upon the Holy Spirit. So I said, Lord, what can we do? It's a great question to ask. And he answered with the Scripture I read to open. The Spirit said the church's primary strategy is to look like Jesus. Because when the church looks like Jesus, people will come and they'll bring their broken friends and family with them. So look like Jesus. And for the past 33 years, that's been our simple strategy. And I'm going to unpack next week what it means to look like Jesus. But I want to say, looking like Jesus, while it sounds simple, is not. Many things that sound simple are not simple, like losing weight, getting in shape, loving your neighbor. Sounds simple, but they're not simple. And church testimony bears vivid testimony of the fact that the church many times doesn't look much like Jesus. It adopts some rather bad looks. Those of you that are married, have you ever put on an outfit, I've done this, and ask your spouse, is this a good look? If you have a loving spouse, sometimes they're got to say something like, mm, no. 
no, uh, you're not planning on going out with that, are you? you? Go back into the closet and let's make some changes. Okay. By the way, just a little rabbit trail. Men, if your wife ever says, does this outfit make me look heavy? Pray for an instant bout of muteness because there is no right answer. If you say, no, honey, you look great, and one of her friends says, that dress makes you look heavy, you are roadkill. And of course, if you say, well, yes, it does make you look heavy. Okay. What does the church look like when it doesn't look good? What are some of the bad looks of the church? Let me run through a few. A culture club. That's a gathering of people where everybody's the same. And in culture clubs, everybody applauds community, but they avoid the inevitable hard challenges and sacrifices of doing community with people that are different from them. Now, culture club churches don't think of themselves as such. In fact, they generally define their de facto exclusion of different people as a virtue, claiming this is the most effective way of growing the church. And it has been proven to be a very effective way of increasing nickels and noses. But holiness isn't determined by offerings and attendance. And the culture club, everybody looks just like me is the place where people tend to get affirmed rather than transformed because there are no contrary opinions in the room. And it's a bad look for the church. Another bad look is the look of the debate club. These are churches where the people derive their identity and their sense of righteousness by holding to a particular controversial theological position, and every week they preach against those who hold to a different position, essentially debating people who aren't in the room and thanking God that they don't believe like that church down the street believes. That's a bad look. Some churches look like a museum of ancient history. Now, here's something you all need to know. We all have this tendency of falling in love with the cultural forms and expressions of devotion in which we first encountered God. And then we attach undue devotion to those forms rather than to God himself. Now, that was true of the Pharisees. They loved their traditions. They loved the way God had worked in the past so much that they refused the way God was working in the present and the way God wanted to work in the future. But let me give you an example from American history. Many who came to Jesus during the Jesus movement of the 70s kept trying to hold on to the dynamics of the Jesus movement long after it was over. They kept trying to reduplicate 70s culture instead of walking with Jesus in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s. And we all have that tendency. But churches that want to hold on to past music and past forms of expression forfeit the future. Their best days are behind them. And oddly enough, those who like this look for the church don't practice it anywhere else. They don't come to church in automobiles from the 40s. 
they don't dress in the leisure suits of the 70s. And those of you who are younger, you'll need to Google that. But let, let me remind you, it'll be ugly when you see it. But yes, we used to dress that way. When I was gone through school, I worked in men's clothing. I sold leisure suits, but God has forgiven me. <laughs> and when the service is over, you're not going to ask for a cassette tape of the message. So why should the church look like a museum? Sometimes the church looks like a dysfunctional family. As iron sharpens iron, one's bad habits sharpen the bad habits of another. And this particular look comes with matching accessories, power struggles, personality conflicts, and cult-like control issues. Sometimes the church looks like a monument to a man or a moment where the focus is always some past glory and the good old days that are never as good as we think they were because over time we forget all that was ugly and we only remember all that was good. Sometimes the church looks like an entertainment enterprise. Years ago, the prophet and preacher A.W. Tozer said, it's becoming increasingly difficult to draw people to a meeting where the only attraction is God himself. In our entertainment era, where we are saturated with entertainment and have an insatiable appetite for something new and interesting, too often the church just looks like show business with a scriptural tint. Here's an ugly one. Sometimes the church looks like an infomercial. You often see this one on TV. It comes complete with exaggerated promises of physical healing, family salvation, financial windfalls, and deliverance from the twin demons of maturity and responsibility. And yes, that's sarcasm. Why develop good financial habits when you can send in a gift and have somebody buying the spirit of debt from your life? What a joke. And most of these offerings are time-sensitive, like the old flashing blue lights at Kmart. And again, you can Google that. You know, where the offer was only good for the next half hour. And in these kind of churches, God's at work for the next half hour, so you need to get your very best financial gift in over the next half hour if you want to see your kids saved. And these clowns present God as somebody who only will bless you when you cough up the dough. Sometimes the church looks like a pep rally. You get a real good organist, pianist who knows what to do, and a good worship leader, and they cue everybody when it's time to get their groove on, when it's time to boogie, because when we boogie, we've proven that we're moving in the spirit, living in victory. We've got the anointing, and we know how to do church up in here. <laughs> but you see, it doesn't matter how high you jump if you don't walk straight once you land. <laughs> now, it's not wrong to jump. Remember, David's wife condemned him for dancing before the Lord, and God didn't like what she did. So don't be David's wife. As a pastor, I'd much rather put water on wildfire than raise the dead. Another bad look for the church, a Bible jihad. Angry people disrespected by the world, the media, Washington, and we've had it, and they're always talking about warfare. 
Now it's time for me to tick somebody off. Sometimes the church, sometimes the church looks like a political party at prayer. And, and Democrat and Republican. I'm an equal opportunity offender. This is a particularly stubborn, stubborn and largely acceptable form of idolatry. And it is idolatry. Because when your trust is in the chariots of Egypt and the vassal kings of Rome, rather than in God, you are an idol worshiper. And I'm tired of seeing Christians more passionate about a stinking American election than I've ever seen them be passionate about saving the lost, evangelizing the world, and serving the poor. Things we get passionate about tell us what are really most important in our lives. And this election is telling us some very bad things about the church. This form of idolatry go, grows when a society begins to crumble and an election season draws near. In this look, God is reduced to our tribal war deity and the chief guardian of our cultural idols rather than the one who died to save us from them. Those who don't share our political persuasions are always the spawn of Satan because after all, we know we're on the side of the angels. And for those who worship at this bad look, Facebook is one of their favorite shrines. See, I want you to vote Tuesday. I want you to pray. I just want to remind you, you may be nervous about the outcome of the election, but I've got a hunch Jesus isn't. Because even though our nation is a hot mess, Republicans nor Democrats are going to fix it. Only Jesus can fix it. And it's a shame when the people who know that get more passionate about Republican Democrat than they do about Jesus. Spiral of weakening, having less and less and less to offer when our nation needs more and more and more. Finally, the church can look like a subculture. These are people who have their own language, their own music, their own rituals when they gather together, but the rest of the week they do American culture. So those are bad looks for the church. In, in subculture churches, we transfer information, but we never experience transformation. We fill our Bible notebooks, but we never change. Yes, we have our own places and our own language, and we can make uh, visitors feel like they're on the outside, but we're not doing anything. We can't name the last person we led to Jesus. We can't name the last person we witnessed to. We can't identify the last major step of growth in our life. It's a subculture. We just have our little gatherings, but the rest of the time we're doing American culture. That's a bad look for the church. Well, next week, there's not going to be neat conclusions in this series. Next week, we'll look at what the church should look like, what it really means to look like Jesus. Then we're going to look at some of the giants we face, and I'm going to be as frank as a pastor could ever be with the congregation in identifying those giants that we face. But what's the takeaway if you just want to get through the week? Let me offer several. Don't waste your times of desperation. Make them opportunities for discovering God in a new way. Don't pursue the wrong standards for success. 
Boy, you can apply that a hundred ways personally. I've encountered young men and women in this congregation disappointed because the parents who raised them in the gospel discourage them from following vocational ministry because they won't make enough and instead encourage them to go to the name school so that they can get the big paycheck. That's the wrong standards of success. That's idolatry, not devotion. So don't waste your desperations. And then the final personal takeaway, get in front of the spiritual mirror and say, Jesus, is this a good look? David did that. Search me, O God, and see if there is any wicked way within me. Does this dress make me look bad? Does this make me look like Jesus? See, those are some takeaways. Because if you're in a place that's getting it right, you'll be able to get it right as well. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to get it right because people who right now are outside the kingdom need us to get it right so they can get into the kingdom and find Jesus. And help us to get rid of all the bad looks that we so easily adopt. And help us to look like Jesus. And we pray this in his great name. Amen and amen.